It's the beauty of simplicity That brings me down to my knees I praise you for eternity And Lord I love you Because you You first loved me It's the beauty of simplicity Fills me with eternity I've tasted your divinity And Lord I love you Because you You first loved me And all God's people say We We love you We love you That brings me down to my knees I've tasted your divinity And Lord I love you Because you You first love You gave yourself away Just that I could stay you took my place in death And rose that I could say That you are holy And you alone Deserve my praise And all God's people say We We love you We love you Hello, Door of Hope. It's so good to be with you today. 
uh, excited for us to continue in our study of the book of Romans. And today we're going to be looking uh, at Paul's argument in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. And we're going to go through verse 25 as he continues to define uh, the distinction between law and gospel, really looking at righteousness that is imputed to us by our faith in a God who has accomplished work on our behalf through Jesus uh, and the other side of that which is which is that natural impulse in the human heart to work for something that we cannot earn uh, and that is that religious impulse and the dis- the difference between law and, and gospel the difference between uh, between faith and works is is so dramatic uh, that uh, we need to understand the distinctions because too often we blur those lines and we may begin our journey with Jesus as uh, as a trust in what God has done for us but how quickly even that initial act of receptivity can turn into an attempt to earn what is already ours so that we can quickly become like Paul addressing the Galatian uh, the Galatian church when he says he says you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you are you trying to perfect in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit so Paul is taking us really to the father of faith which is Abraham and beginning in verses 9 through 13, I'm going to take a big chunk at once because really the argument here is, 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 is Paul is going to establish faith in relation uh, to law. And he says, Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. Notice what Paul is doing here is he is reminding those Jewish believers that circumcision was a sign that was to be the the physical mark of that inward transformation. My dependence upon God, my faith in Him, simple faith in Him and His ability to act on my behalf. Uh, is evidenced in my willingness to receive this mark as one of God's people. But what Paul is very carefully showing is that circumcision came after Abraham's faith, which was accounted to him as righteousness. It was the mark of the faith in which he had in God. It was not he was circumcised and accepted. He was accepted and became circumcised. And so he goes on to say, He received circumcision as a sign, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. And this is, I think, a very similar language that we would use is uh, is to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a a seal uh, upon our lives that we are no longer our own, but we have been purchased at a price and God has blessed us uh, with the mark of his very presence in our lives by his Holy Spirit. Uh, And Paul will dig into that, but I think that there are some really powerful parallels to that here. And he says, And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. 
and he is then also the father of the circumcised who are not only are circumcised but also who follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So notice he is saying that, that Abraham is not simply the father of a select few, that is Israel, but he is the father of all who live by that simple, total trust in the living God. For those who, who are not of Jewish descent, but are now putting their faith in Jesus, they are justified, imp given imputed righteousness the same way that Abraham did. They tr we trust God and it is imputed to us as righteousness. We say yes to God's yes declared over us in Jesus and we receive into ourselves the gift of his spirit. We receive into ourselves eternal life and it is in that, in that place of transformation and new creation that we have then the ability to live out of faith unto obedience. But we don't obey that we might believe. Uh, we believe and, and discover a love that is immovable, that inspires us to, and motivates us uh, to live in intimacy with God, which causes us to look at all the areas of our lives that, that would hurt uh, that intimacy. Uh, it creates in us a desire to be conduits of that same love that others might experience uh, the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus as they themselves receive uh, by faith the gift of God's presence into their lives. And so Paul is very careful here to, to create a language that eradicates the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile because salvation now comes through Jesus alone for all people. He is the one for the many and the many in the one. And he says, for the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. I want you to just to listen to those words very carefully. Because uh, here you have the faith in relation to the law and you're given really the language of faith for the law brings wrath. Is the law good? Yes, it is good, it is perfect. But its perfection actually is the very thing that condemns us, it cannot save us. All it can reveal to us is that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And that is why when the law is understood, what it brings is condemnation because we see how far short we fall of God's perfect character. Um, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And this is why Paul will use this very unique language. Jesus says, I did not come to destroy the law, uh, but I came to fulfill the law. Paul is using that same language uh, when he says that Jesus is the end of the law. It's not that he's saying the law is bad. He's saying that it is fulfilled in Christ. He has completed what no one else can complete. And this is why our salvation is not based upon uh, upon our ability to keep the law because we can't keep the law, which would mean that we would be simply objects of wrath. But instead, we, we place our faith in the one who has kept the law uh, on our behalf. And this is the beauty of the gospel. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith 
in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So Abraham becomes the archetype of saving faith. Uh, and I love the way that Paul ties the New Testament uh, gospel message uh, to the entire biblical message, which is honestly what all of, the, all of the New Testament writers are doing. This is why we need to be students of not only the New Testament, the gospels and the epistles uh, and the pastoral letters uh, in the apocalyptic uh, literature of the New Testament. We need to be well-versed in the Old Testament because the New Testament is, is unveiling what the Old Testament is pointing to. Everything is pointing to Jesus and we need to understand it. And so Paul is beautifully using the Old Testament to show how it all is pointing to Jesus. And here he shows us that, that Abraham is not just the father of the Jews, but he is the father of all who place their faith in God. So in these verses, the apostle uses uh, these, this profusion of words of law, promise, faith, wrath, transgression, and grace. And these terms all have their own logic, and we must not be guilty of a confusion of categories. Law and promise belong to different categories of thought, uh, which are incompatible. Law language is you shall. It's built upon demands of obedience. But promise language is I will. I will be their God. I will give them forgiveness. I will place my spirit in them. In the Old Testament prophets uh, like Ezekiel, what do you have? You have the, the promise that, that the spirit of God is going to come and that spirit uh, will be, will he says, I will remove their heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within them. Jeremiah, the same thing, he says, my laws will be written upon their heart. This is promise language. It is not, it is not law language, which makes demands upon us. You shall do this. If you want to do this, you must do this. It is not based upon contingency. It is based upon the promises of, of God who is faithful in light of our faithlessness. And so I, I think this is really important. What God says to Abraham was not obey this law and I will bless you, but I will bless you, believe my promise. The words law, transgression, and wrath all belong to the same category of thought. Uh, for the law turns sin into transgression. It's a deliberate trespass. A transgression provokes wrath. That is, that we are working against the very, the very order of creation. God has created this universe and has created the world and is built upon laws that he put into motion. And we are consistently guilty of violating the laws of creation. It's amazing how every time humanity tries to make the world a better place, we actually end up making it worse. I think this is, this is the fundamental issue uh, that comes from this, this inevitability of sinfulness working its way out of every, or, in, or working, excuse me, working its way into every arena of human existence. For even the good we do ends up being mixture where still there can be damage done. And this is one of the things that I think is so interesting even about uh, words like progress, uh, because progress often comes with 
unforeseen consequences. Uh, and and all you need to, if you want to really understand the concept of how all things are mixture, just consider the internet for a second. Is the internet capable of good? Uh, well, I think the internet is is amoral, uh, but it is utilized for both good, but it is also incredibly utilized for evil. And the question is, is would we be better off with or without it? I would probably argue we'd be better off without it. Uh, it doesn't mean it can't be redeemed. It just means that every time humans think that we are making a progress toward greater enlightenment, uh, there is unforeseen consequences due to the, to the very sinfulness of, of human nature. And that is what we call uh, total depravity. That is that, that sin has infiltrated every arena of existence, meaning that even the good we do is still ultimately a bit of a bit of a mess <laughs> and the beautiful mess is that Jesus is able to enter into it uh, and make it his own and provide a, a redemptive way out by taking the wickedness of humanity into himself the worst that humans can do to one another Jesus took it all into himself this is why the cross uh, is 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 a tragedy and it is also at the same time this beautiful emblem of God's uh, reluctance to exist without us. Uh, verse 16, I think, is a further example of the logic of language as it brings together grace and faith. Uh, the Greek sentence is much more dramatic than the English, uh, since in the original there are neither verbs nor nouns, uh, nor the noun promise. It reads literally, therefore, by faith in order that according to grace. The fixed point is that God is gracious and that salvation originates in his sheer grace alone. Uh, but in order that this may be so, our human response must be faith. For grace gives and faith takes. I receive what God is giving freely. Let's next consider faith in relation to God and his power. In verse 17, Paul goes on to say, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those which do not exist as though they did. Remember what I said about faith. Faith in relationship to God and his power is important for us to remember that we all are exercising faith every moment of every day. Uh, but faith is only as good as the object in which we place our faith. Um, we, uh, we all fall victim to putting our faith in things that, that fail us. Um, we can put our faith in relationships that end up being heartbreaking. Uh, we can put our faith in our jobs and lose our jobs. We can put our faith or our hope in our marriage and watch our marriages implode. The, you know, that there's a, a reality um, that, that the only thing that can handle uh, our implicit faith and actually not fail is faith in God. I mean, this is why it, one of the most damaging lies uh, of, of, for a modern man is this idea that we are to put our faith in ourselves. Believe in yourself, but why, would, why should I believe in myself? I don't know if you're like me, but I just turned 47 on Monday. And, uh, and, and I, was, I would say that no matter how old I get or how much more wisdom I have gained or how many more books I have read or how much more life experience I have, 
if I have learned anything, is that faith in myself is probably the worst idea that one could actually call me to do. My, my productivity is actually dependent upon my, my uh, reluctance to, uh, to put my faith in myself and my willingness uh, to continue to put faith in the only one who can help me and help me to be the man that I have been called to be, to be the husband and the father that I need to be. It is by God and his presence in my life that I am able uh, to accomplish the things that I have accomplished. If Jesus had not intervened in my life, I wouldn't even be married right now, nor would I even have my two beautiful children. Uh, and when I begin to fail as a father, as a dad, uh, as a pastor, is when I begin to trust in my own ability. Uh, a, a man once wisely said to me, he said, Josh, he said, God's anointing is on your life. And this is right before I started the church. He was a really uh, a man I just had met and I just we just immediately had this connection. And he was just so encouraging to me. And he said, God has put an anointing on your life to plant this church. But be very careful uh, that you do not begin, uh, if, if growth and success comes uh, and whatever that means, I'm not even sure, honestly. But uh, he said, do not become uh, convinced that it's somehow due to your own giftedness. Whatever gifts you have are a gift from God. And Paul himself said that. What do you have that you did not receive? And so he said, he said listen, the moment you begin to rely upon your own ability is the moment you will have to rely on your own cleverness. And it will carry you for a while, but people will see through it. Because what people want to see and experience is is a is a person that is spirit-filled that is where the power is and the power is in a humble recognition that i need help daily but when i surrender to jesus it creates space for the holy spirit then to be manifested in and through us in a way that we begin to walk not in the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of self-control and i think that this is the this is the beauty of that our faith is only as good as the object in which we place our faith. That's why those who have wisely written, and I don't even know who originated the statement, that the one who has God truly has everything. If the one who spoke in the universe left into existence is the same one who comes to literally dwell within us and empower us and bring transformation to our lives from the inside out, how do we experience the full power of the gospel? What is the key to it? It's a daily daily surrender uh, to Jesus' kingship over our lives. And are you surrendered? Because I believe that what hinders us from experiencing the power of the gospel is often our own feeble attempts uh, to continue to control and dictate our own terms and to define for ourselves what is right and wrong. We say we believe in Jesus, but we still continue to make decisions without Jesus even in mind. We still continue to often go down paths that, that bring destruction and heartbreak rather than life. I mean, if Corona has done anything uh, in this time, I think that not only has it revealed our deep need for one another, how good it is to be together. And I just want you guys to know, I cannot wait to be preaching into your, uh, to your faces rather than into a black camera lens. I just read an article the other day as a side note, uh, 
where a pastor posed the question, is this even actually preaching from a biblical standpoint? Well, I pray that it is. I pray that God's Spirit is able to transcend whatever medium we are forced to use right now. But the fact is, is that we need to be a people uh, that demonstrate the power of the gospel, that we need to live in a, in a calm confidence that Jesus is with us. And one of the things that I think that Corona has, has really revealed uh, is, is, the, is those areas where we are still trying to control our own lives, where we're still trying to escape our realities, where we're not living in dependence upon Jesus, uh, but instead we are kind of coasting by spiritually. I've talked to too many Christians right now, even, even leaders who are saying this has been an extremely spiritually dead season. I believe that Jesus is trying to utilize this time uh, to bring purification to our lives. The fact is, is that this will be a blip in the map of eternity. And so are we wearying and doing good? Are, have we lost sight of what the gospel's about? Even for those of you who are feeling upset and frustrated and, and, and impatient in uh, our ability to gather again, what is, at the, what is at the back of that? Is the motivation really that you want to be with people to love on them? Or is it possible that the motivation is driven by your own desires and what you want and what's best for you rather than what is best for the whole community? I was thinking about this as, as I was having a, an amazing conversation with a man, Michael Ramsden, who's the new president of RZIM. Uh, and, uh, as many of you heard, uh, Ravi Zacharias passed away last week. And I interviewed Michael. This will come out in a new podcast that I'm starting called The Amateur Pastor, an interview with him around how should we as a church respond in this time of quarantine. And one of the things that we talked about in great detail is that, yes, it's true that for many of us, uh, the risk for us experiencing a fatality, uh, uh, personally dying from coronavirus is very slim. And the younger you get, the, the less the risk. Uh, but there is an, entirely, an entire vulnerable population of millions of elderly people. And how often do we think about the elderly in our lives? How often do we, are you the person who says, I'll never wear a mask because the government doesn't have the right to tell me what to do? Are you that person that would walk by someone who has pre-existing uh, pre conditions and be comfortable saying that it's my right rather than actually considering uh, what might be best for the person in front of you? I've been convicted by that because often I have had a cavalier attitude out in public and I don't like people telling me what to do. And so this is not me coming down on you. This is me being convicted by the Holy Spirit. As Michael was talking with me, I realized that often I am not taking into consideration those that are the most vulnerable, those that are the, that are the, most, that, that are the most isolated right now. And we just want you to know if that's if you're in that group, we love you, and we want to be we want to be the church. This should be a time in which we are modeling what it looks like to care for the most vulnerable. Uh, and this there is so much tension in our country right now: racial tension, uh, violence. There's there is a, a, a cavalier attitude among many Americans that this is about their personal rights being violated. They could care less about. Um, elderly who are perishing alone in, 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 in homes uh, without anyone to care for them or to love them. We cannot afford to fall into the trappings of culture wars and, and the politis, 
and the political motivated agendas that are all around us. What we need to be motivated by is the gospel and the language of faith. And I just encourage you, faith in relationship to God is this, is that the God in whom we worship and serve is the God who spoke and the universe leapt into existence. And we need to pray that he would transform our hearts and our minds from the inside out, that we would have a different kind of attitude, a different kind of response, that we wouldn't be living by law, but that we would be living by grace. And that grace is unfair and it goes out toward everyone. Even as we watch the tensions uh, in our country and the desires for justice, does our desire for justice override our desire for grace? Do our enemies deserve God's grace? Yes, they do. Are we a people that should be functioning in grace? Yes, we should. We need to put our faith in the thing that actually has the ability to transform our life. Abraham's faith in his God's promises were built on two great attributes. His power, that was his ability to keep what he promised, and his faithfulness, that he could be one who was relied upon. Nothing scares modern people more than nothingness and death. And I think that this is one of the things that we need to understand is that what is motivating much of the world right now is fear. And Christians, you need to remember God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Are you fearful of losing your rights? Are you fearful of sickness? Listen, we need to re restore a, a, an eternal perspective. We need to come back to that place where we believe that the best is yet to come, that eternity is going to be uh, us face to face with King Jesus, the wedding banquet as as Michael and I talked about today, the, the, the feast that is coming in which we will be with the one who laid down his life for us and we will live in eternity uh, in a, in a sin-free existence. This is not a fairy tale. This is the promise of Scripture. And the God whom we have placed our faith is faithful to fulfill his promises. Uh, Ernest Becker wrote this amazing uh, book. He is a psychologist called the denial of death, and he talks about our refusal to acknowledge our own mortality. And I think that this is one of the things that we are seeing all around us right now. We need to recognize that our, our faith in relationship to our God is that he is one who has conquered death, that he holds the keys to life and death. Jesus himself is victor, and this is why we need to come back to a place where we experience faith and relationship to hope. Look what he says in verses 18 and 19, who contrary to hope and hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Remember, he's now use, utilizing the illustration of Abraham, who was past Abraham and Sarah. I, I like what it says about Sarah here. It says, since he did not consider his own body already dead. It's not a very pleasant statement about our aging bodies. As I move truly into midlife, I'm now moving to the second half of life, uh, 47, and that's me being generous to the length of life. I never thought I would make it past 75. Uh, but I like that he says, Abraham believed God. He hoped in the promise of God, even though he was past, past his prime, that Sarah herself, um, who, she was past the ability to give birth. 
God was making, making a promise that would require a miraculous intervention. Hope is the expectation of something desirable. This is not a word that is connected with uncertainty when it is used um, in, the, in the scriptures. Hope is a confidence uh, that is connected to an expectation of a future possession of all that God has promised. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Uh, I think that this is so important for us to remember when we think of Abraham that contrary to hope, there was nothing in himself nor in Sarah that could fix the problem. There was only double death. And yet he had to look to God, the one who is the author of life, and in his faith upon those promises, there was a hope it says that in contrary to hope and hope believed. Have you lost hope today? Because faith in Christ is in a dependence upon Christ to be in us what we cannot be for ourselves. It requires a hope that surpasses, overrides the hopelessness of our generation. And it's one of the things that the world, it's one of the evidences of the supernatural reality of God's presence in our life is the ability to maintain hope in, in the midst of what seems like a hopeless situation. I, I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the way that he maintained hope and joy when he was in, imprisoned by the Nazis, knowing that he would lose his life uh, for what he believed and, what, and that he had been caught with the desire to fight against this regime. And he was put to death. And yet what those who were in prison with him said about him was that he was a man who continually manifested this calm repose. Even though he, would, he himself would say that he was afraid, he knew that God was with him. What could be done to him? What could be done to him? God was already victorious in Jesus. And I think that this is what we see in Abraham. This is what we see in the great men and women of faith throughout history. And this is what we need today. Contrary to hope, nothing in himself, nor Sarah, that could fix the problem. They weren't capable of having children naturally. They needed a miracle. And this is why we need to consider faith in relationship to God's faithfulness as well. In verses 20 through 22, it says, For he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith giving glory to God and being fully convinced that he, what he had promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him as righteousness. I like what John Stott says about this. He says, behind all promises lies the character of the person who makes them. Faith looks at the problems in the light of the promises. Hebrews 11, 11 says, By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Now, it's interesting that Paul here focuses in on Abraham and Sarah's faith, but we know the story. Abraham and Sarah did believe, but they also struggled. They had, they had weak faith in moments. Abraham slept with his servant. 
and gave birth to a son that God did not even recognize uh, because it was Abraham trying to accomplish in the flesh what God had promised to do miraculously. Sarah, we're told, we're, we are told, laughed when she heard that she would give birth because she knew that she was past the, the, the time in her life when she could have a child. But the beauty of that is that, that what is overriding those moments of weakness uh, is the, their faith in God because it wasn't dependent upon their ability, it was dependent upon His ability. And so His ability to fulfill what He had promised to them and their faith, even though it was weak faith, Jesus said, even if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could tell this mountain to jump into the sea and it would. I think that Abraham and Sarah ultimately glorified God by letting God be God and God justified them for their faith. And I think this is important for us to see that their story, their faith story was still a story of mixture, but God still um, blessed them for their faith. It's, it shows us something about God's nature because we think when we fail, when we do what Abraham and Sarah did, which is take take the initiative, we get tired of waiting for God to fulfill His promises, and therefore we just say, we're going to make our own decisions. We're going to decide what what is right and wrong, that we can get off track and we can lose sight of the gospel and we can actually function in the flesh and actually do things that are quite damaging. It's not that Abraham and Sarah were, with, were pain-free. Abraham slept with another woman that hurt his wife. He gave birth to a child that was not recognized by God uh, nor by his own wife. She despised the child and the maidservant. I think that these are important to understand that there are always consequences to sin. But God, it did not stop God from blessing them. It did not stop God from fulfilling His promises. Because God is God. And God's character is often misunderstood. One of the reasons we often struggle with trusting God is because we think that He is something that He is not. We make God in our own image rather than allowing God to make us into His image as we trust in Him. And this is why we close with these words in 23 through 25. Faith in relation to justification. Now it was not written for His sake alone that it was imputed to Him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in Him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Abraham is the pattern of justifying faith. God promises to save us by His grace through the work of Jesus. We are called to trust completely in this promise. This is not our natural instinct. I think, think about uh, someone, if you hear um, about someone, or I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you uh, were uh, close to drowning. I've been in that, that situation. I remember when I was in first grade, I was in a swimming pool. Uh, I was visiting my dad over the summer and up in Okanagan, and we were, my brother and I were swimming in this, this swimming pool in this town of Omak, this public pool, and I, I couldn't swim, and I, I, I bounced where the, the pool declined into the deep end. I was like bouncing on my feet, and I didn't realize that I was bouncing toward the deep end, and before I knew it, I was over my head and I was trying to bounce out, but I began to panic. And as I began to panic, I began to flail. 
And then this young girl tried to help me and my flailing, I, I'm pretty sure I punched her about three times in the face, not, not meaning to. It was like I couldn't, I couldn't, I was so panicked, I couldn't even trust the very one that was trying to save me. Luckily, uh, she was able to get behind me and push me back toward the shallow end. Uh, but I think that this is often the issue is that we often, uh, we often slap at or hit at or fight against the very one who is trying to save us. Uh, and faith requires uh, a, 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 a trust where we allow ourselves to be helped. But when we feel like we're drowning, that can be very difficult. Uh, and I just want to encourage you, Hebrews 12, 2, it tells us that we're to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Uh, we need justifying faith. It is so easy to begin to doubt God's promises. When someone's struggling with sickness or physical or, or pain or dealing with loss or heartbreak, it can be easy to, to stop believing that God is good. I just want you guys to know He is good. This is the gospel. Verse 25 says it, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. This is the gospel. We sinned, therefore he suffered. We were justified, therefore he rose. Creation and resurrection, this is what our Lord brings to us as we trust in him. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation that the resurrection and life of Jesus is available to us now as we trust in Him. This is why it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. That salvation is present tense. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved. Sorry, it's not present tense, it's future tense. Three tenses of salvation used in Scripture. All of them come through our faith in our King. We have been saved by faith. We are being saved by faith. We shall be saved by faith because it is not our faith that saves. It's the one in whom we place our faith, Jesus. He is the immovable rock. And this is why we need to live by faith, not by our own futile efforts to prove our worth or to save ourselves, we need help. And Jesus is here to give it. He loves you. I love you. We love you as the leaders of the church. We must reflect what it looks like to live with a total dependence upon our King. The world is looking for hope. Are we a reflection of that hope today? I pray that we are. Love you guys. Until next time, this is Josh. Oh Lord, I am like the moon Without the sun I hang in darkness too So be the light, the light that shines through Reflect on me the love that comes from It all comes down to this Jesus, I must confess No, I won't be afraid To step into your flame To burn, to 